Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce tonight's event, Luke Toyman's In Conversation with the Royal Academy Senior Curator, Adrian Locke. An internationally renowned artist, Luke Toyman's work features in leading public and private collections worldwide, and it's regularly included in major solo and group exhibitions. Um, in London, he's had solo exhibitions at the ICA and Tate Modern. He represented Belgium at the 49th Venice Biennale and has been the subject of retrospectives in Europe, Qatar and um, the US. His exhibition, Glasses, is currently on at the National Portrait Gallery. Um, in 2015, he was awarded an honorary degree by the Royal College of Art and he's represented by Zeno X in Antwerp and David Zwerner in New York and London. Um, as well as his own work um, as an artist, Luke Toymans has previously created exhibitions in Belgium, Germany and America, including The Gap, Selected Abstract Art from Belgium, Constable Delacroix, Frederic Goya, A Shock to Senses, and A Vision of Central Europe. He has now worked with the RA to present an exhibition of fellow Belgian artist James Ensor with a brilliant selection of work in Intrigue, James Ensor by Luke Toymans, which is on at the Royal Academy until the end of January 2017. Um, so tonight, Luke Toymans will be discussing his career as well as his curation of the James Ensor exhibition with Adrian Locke, who I'd now like to hand over to. Thank you. Thank you, Kira. I thought we would divide the conversation into basically three parts. The first is going to be looking at some of the exhibitions that Luke has curated prior to uh, the James Ensor exhibition. We'll then look at the James Ensor exhibition in a bit more detail and talk about Ensor as an artist. And then I would like to look at um, Luke in juxtaposition, really, with Ensor and the the similarities and differences between them and the connections that they have uh, through their work. So I'll start off by saying that, that Luke has, uh, as we've just heard, curated some 16 exhibitions. And um, I am very interested to know what it is that, um, it, that encourages you to accept invitations to curate shows. What does it do for you? And, and how does it um, respond, or how do you respond to those invitations? First of all, I've never instigated a show. I was mostly asked to curate a show, and once I accept, I try to do my best. Uh, the interesting thing of curating a show is that you're working not with your own work. You're working with somebody else's work, be it still contemporary artists that are alive or people that are dead, like in this case, and so The most uh, uh, enjoyable is the ones that are dead, because they can't talk back. <laughs> so... In a sense, it's... But it is quite exuberating, you know, to... I remember in the very first show I did, of which you don't have a slide, Trouble Spot Painting, which was uh, derived from the biggest artist cooperative ever founded in Belgium and was uh, based in Antwerp. It was a show about the problematization of painting and a juxtaposition between the, the two-dimensional and the one that went into the space. Like, to make it clear, like, you will have Gerhard Richter next to Helio Titschika and the things like that. And I still remember the one particular moment where they were unpacking the resonance, which is the gold piece of Eve Klein, and in the same space there were two paintings of Gary James Marshall, who is the then mother and the then father, and big Ugo Rondinoni's, and an Ellsworth Kelly. And that was <coughs> quite a severe kick. I mean, it was quite an interesting thing. Also, the fact is, I want to state that the shows that I curate, or have been asked to curate, are of course not shows that, although I studied art history, 
are not shows that, uh, that go on to an academic level, but start from the visual. And that is a very important thing, as also is actually the Ensor show. The Ensor show, of which we'll talk in length a bit later, is a show that mostly is derived from a visual experience. And that is probably the biggest cake, I mean, to, to, to do that. It, it is a certain pleasure. Well, I mean, you've obviously done, you've done exhibitions uh, drawing from the collection of the Stadel Museum in Frankfurt. Uh, you did an exhibition, uh, in fact, you worked with uh, Ai Weiwei, Ai Weiwei, an yeah. exhibition that uh, started off in Brussels and then became... Went, and, went, and, went, and went to the NAMOC, which is the, the most important uh, museum, I mean, official museum for, for modern art in, in Beijing. And this was a very... Uh, difficult route, I mean, because you have to work with diplomacy. Actually, uh, we had Barroso in that game to actually come to that. And the most important thing was not so much how the show was perceived in Brussels, but mostly how it was perceived in Beijing, because this was the first time that their contemporary artists, alongside of, of course, Belgium contemporary artists that I picked, I picked the Chinese, were shown in this institution which is quite interesting, because that was the aim, actually. And this was a time, obviously, when Ai Weiwei had, was still... Um, well, Ai, in... Ai Weiwei accepted the, the, the whole project half-heartedly. The 35 people that had to work on it, we never saw. He, uh, and, of course, tried to get out of it at the far end of it. But he had to come to the opening because there were 800 people. So uh, It was a, a very... I mean, it was an interesting collaboration because it showed me the in and outs of how you actually could work there. And it was also a test, because, I mean, you can do a lot in the private zone in China, but it's far more difficult to do it on an official level. And did you, did you, was your experience there um, tempered by um, official um, interference? Were you given no. free hands? I mean, there was, there was only one piece they censored because they had to censor something, but... And it was a piece by Dennis Stevens in Antwerp based um, much more like street art in a sense, but he had this large painting and they, they, they found a scrotum in it. Now we <laughs> scrutinized it with the artist and we couldn't find the scrotum. But I mean, that, that was just because they had to do something, you know, I mean, they had to do something. I have to also say I worked with Van de Jong, who was at that point, uh, also before the controversy with Iway, for which I actually warned him the day of the opening. Uh, uh, at that point, Van Yang was actually the boss of all the museums and was become, nearly at the point of becoming uh, Minister of Culture. And, of course, through the whole situation with IOA, was shot away and now is the director of the CAFA. It was an apparatchik, but still an academic and actually quite progressive in a sense. It was a time when the door was a little bit opened, whereas I think now it's closing again. Indeed. But you're, you're uh, working on a big exhibition for China, is that right? Yeah, well, that, that remains, that's not set in stone, that remains to be seen, because, again, this is an official thing, and again, with Ai Weiwei, this is about my own work. Yeah. And uh, because once uh, I got all this done uh, at the opening uh, dinner, and uh, there was one guy who was actually there for all the, I mean, let's say for foreign affairs and all the people, things that come out of the West, who spoke nine languages fluently, also Dutch. And uh, was very sceptical, but turned at that point because the night before the opening, Barroso came, and they had to phone the Minister of Culture out of his bed. So it was a whole power game. Yeah. And they thanked me at the dinner because I did it the military way. 
And therefore, they, I was also going to get the very first, they were going to do the biggest diamond show on the globe, because at that point they wanted to buy, they wanted to, to make or construct a museum of contemporary modern art of 58,000 square meters, which is about the size of the Pentagon, <laughs> which, in fact, didn't happen. So, but I mean, it, it, is, it, is an, it is an ongoing story. Yeah. Uh, I'll just flick through a few more. You did the uh, Bruges Central uh, Art Festival, um, and uh, well, this was, I thought was an interesting um, example of your work, uh, taking away from um, painting uh, the way that you've created this mosaic, which you can only appreciate when you travel to the top of this uh, museum, the Mass in Antwerp, this beautiful modern building where your exhibition of glasses is on at the moment. Was on on the moment. I mean, because uh, part of it, five, six paintings came to London, to the National Portrait Gallery. This was uh, f- five years ago when uh, the city, actually, because the city museum, asked me to uh, make a proposal for actually my very first public work. I mean, there's wall paintings that still exist, but this is a really public, public work because it's a square. And I thought I'm going to give them something that's, that they want, don't want to have. But, of course, they wanted it. And it's, uh, it's based upon a painting which is in the National uh, Gallery in Washington now, which was painted for the second document in which I took part, and it's based on a bas-relief which commemorates action Quinton Matsais, who was the founder of the Antwerp Painting School from the 15th century. And the story goes that he actually uh, sort of threw himself, I mean, he committed suicide, threw himself from the highest point, which is still the cathedral, and splashed in front of the square and therefore was not enabled to be buried inside of the cathedral and therefore you have this plaque. So that was a sort of connection with the city. It was also interesting because it was like re... It, the, the painting was derived from a Polaroid that I made from this specific bas-relief. And then from the painting we went back to the element of stone, which is like 11, uh, 11 uh, different sorts of granite that we found all over the world. Yeah, beautiful to get this incredible uh, uh, coloration and, uh, mm. uh, and the way that it stands out. So in terms of doing these exhibitions, uh, there's another one here, Paul Tech and Luke Twimmons. How does, how does it inform your work? Does it inform your work? Does it have an impact on what you do? Well, like this specific one with Paul Tech, for sure, because Paul Tech also, uh, I mean, of course, lived quite a long time in Europe, uh, then went back and died of AIDS, uh, and also had a religious streak to him, which came from me. Which was an interesting juxtaposition because he was an interesting artist on the brink of other things which were at that point not really done in the United States. So in that sense, there was this element of the subversive which sort of entangled with like a painting of Munich that you see here, sort of worked and, mm. uh, and, and made an interesting combination because only two works, this was a, in a gallery in Germany, mostly to thank Isabella Czernowska because she, she helped me with getting two loans of Rublevsky and Alina Szapostika in the other project, which I did in Bruges, which is the largest project so far I did. And there were only two paintings that were actually for sale. The other ones were of mine and the other ones were also loans. So it was like kind of a small curatorial uh, show. So do you, do you find that the, um, 
they change your opinion about artists, they refresh you, they make you look at things differently when you're curating shows and when you're making selections. Yeah, abso- absolutely. And this also happened... Uh, I, I, I was one guy from the BA that came for the, to deliver the constable who was very very skeptical about the project I did with uh, the Erschütterung, uh, you know, the shock of the senses. We wanted, we wanted to call it Wohin, where at, but the Germans didn't want to go there. And... <laughs> but actually, uh, Ulrich Bischoff, his long-standing friend, this was his last show, in the Albertinium at the end of his directorship. And uh, he wanted, his big dream was to bring a couple of artists together out of the, uh, the same time slot that never actually married, sort of, which was Kasper David Friedrich, Goya, uh, Delacroix, and Constable. Now, when this, uh, this, this conservator from the BA came in and quite really knowledgeable about uh, Constable, and there was a little bit, when we were like in the middle of the show, we'd make a sort of like a turning point where we put them all together. When he saw that coming together, he actually had to change his mind. And we had a quite, because it was a very conservative uh, personality, and then he really got into it. I mean, so that means that it can function. And can, if these things can make people reconsider things, which is actually what I think museums should do, Museums should not actually respond to the actual, but they should respond to the actual with the collection, which is like a memory in a sense. It's like something out of which you delve and in which you from there on then make a response. Which is something that's quite integral to your work as well, isn't it? Memory. That, I mean, we're, yeah. we can come on to that later. Uh, that we, we can see, I mean, this is a, a great uh, image. Yeah, here you have the juxtaposition between Jeff Wall, Rotko, I think, and Manet, which is quite interesting which not many people would put those together, but they, they, they create a dialogue. They create yeah, I mean, also because Manet, as well as, as Jeff Wall, had a shock when they went to Spain and when they saw Velázquez and Goya, and it's in that light that they wanted to be seen. Yeah. I wrote a text about it. It was called Excellence, in a sense. Mm. Um, and this is, uh, uh, hopefully, this uh, slide will make sense as we progress through, not only because it's one of uh, the exhibitions that you curated at the Menil Collection in Houston, but those two works in the back wall you can see of Luke's will, will reappear um, as in connection to James Ensor. Uh, and this is an interesting one because, obviously, you're working across cultures here as well. You're not mm. just looking at Western art. Or you, you... Well, this was a show in the Menil Collection where Josef Helfenstein asked me to make actually a selection of portraits and, uh, and then make a choice of the collection. But that could go as far as, like, say, a sculpture from 1200 BC, from Syria, things like that. And it was interesting to, of course, work with a great deal of sculpture in accordance to make a sort of juxtaposition with what was two-dimensional. Yeah. <coughs> and more recently, uh, some of you may have seen this exhibition, Parasol Unit, um, selected abstract art from, from Belgium, which then travelled to Antwerp. Um, and, you know, I think I, what's admirable is that you have the time uh, and the, the inclination to work on these exhibitions at the same time. Yeah, because this was, most, this was mostly with seven artists that were dead and seven that were alive. It was a, so it's like a sort of zombie collision. Uh, <laughs> and it was also about showing abstract art that of course, was a discovery, for the, especially for the contemporary ones, but also for the ones who were dead. I mean, because these were people who had never been shown in London, except maybe one who had a connection with London and the British Library. But apart from that, uh, most of them were unknown. 
and uh, and unrightfully so, also in a sense. So in that sense, I thought it was interesting, and it also then, in that sense, of course, rejuvenates the discourse between these two groups of people who have a different stance towards abstraction. And I thought that was an interesting thing. And the parasol unit, uh, uh, Ziba asked me to create a show, probably much more go into the direction like make a a show about new painting in order to give a, di- a direction into it, which I didn't really want to do, and therefore I chose to oppose that with a more historical stance, which was this. It was a very beautiful show. Very interesting and informative, and as you say, to bring a lesser-known artists to, mm. to the fore, is it? Uh, and we include the selection of these. Um, this exhibition is, is, as we've mentioned before, in the National very small Portrait Gallery. Selection. Very small, room 16 in the National Portrait Gallery, but well worth a visit. And I like this particular slide because there's a, a design conceit that you introduced into this exhibition. Well, this show was actually in the building in front of which there is a square with the dead skull. And I did this show because of several reasons. Because it's not, this is not the Museum of Contemporary Art, it's much more a populist museum that gathers objects and things like that. And since I have a problem with the mayor, that was exactly the point where we were <laughs> going to do it. He also didn't show up at any of the openings, even though it was the 50-year anniversary, and didn't even witness the fireworks. So that was one of the pertinent reasons to do it. The other thing was to work with a space which is not made for these type of exhibitions. Uh, this was also one of the first exhibitions of contemporary art that actually were held there. There was one of a Vietnamese photographer before that. So it was a second time, actually the same floor. Uh, we, and we only had 19 works, and there was a selection of work with not only portraits with glasses, but just with also things that had to do with mirrors, uh, rear, uh, back rear mirrors and things like that, or windows, and these were shown flat on the wall. But all the paintings that had glasses would fall into an encasing into the wall, which made the show quite imposing and quite monumental, and people thought they saw like a gigantic show, although it was only 19. It was a beautiful show, and uh, there you can see the way that the, the, the one image from this uh, work, which has four parts, is recessed because it has an image of an individual wearing glasses. Um, yeah, because that, that doubles up the idea of the glasses, which, of course, uh, I got when I did the Manila collection, because this was an institution which is, uh, was founded by two enlightened friend, a French enlightened couple with oil money and it's a very altruistic situation because you don't have to pay any entrance and things like that. Also the bleeding heart for the African Americans. But, but there was also this element of, it came across a little bit as uh, forced and self-righteous. So, And there I had the idea to go onto the identity and therefore the glasses because if you put on glasses it changes your physiognomy but it's being locked to something quite self-evident whereas it's not. And so that and, of course, it serves different purposes. It's just your vision. If it's sunglasses, it can sort of mask your face. And it, had to, it is not really very well portrayed in the arts. I mean, uh, to the 1300s, you might have a monk and you might have uh, a writer with uh, Velasquez, but it was not very well seen as virile or sexy, in a sense. And it's only through our former, one of our former kings who became a sort of hipster, which was Baudouin, We'll put it on, and then we can go all the way back to Kenneth Clark. You can go further to, to Kenneth Clark, Superman, or Kissinger, and Yves Saint Laurent, where it then became a modus operandum. So that was also an interesting point. Terrific. So here we have uh, <laughs> a picture of Luke. 
Yeah. Standing in front of intrigue. So we're now moving to uh, talk about the exhibition on the Royal Academy, which I'm sure most of you have seen, and if you haven't, we'll probably want to see after this, this talk. Um, we approached Luke completely out of the blue. Luke didn't have uh, a relationship with the Royal Academy, rather surprisingly. Um, and um, But I saw shows in the Royal Academy. You'd seen and shows. I also was in this show, Apocalypse. Indeed. Uh, from, Indeed. Uh, um, and so we were delighted when uh, he accepted the invitation to come and uh, curate the exhibition. And um, rather wonderfully, in the London Review of Books, T.J. Clark has just referred to it as the moment of the autumn uh, and a wonderful selection made by Luke, so very high praise indeed, um, and quite rightly so. Um, what made you agree to do the show? First of all, the fact that I got to know to Tim and you that actually Enzo is not that very well known, also quite underrepresented in British collections, and it's been quite some time since he had a solo or even being co-opted in a group show. So it was based upon this eminent type of ignorance that I actually accepted to do it. And also the fact that Enzo has the largest part of his life he remained British. He was actually the product of a British engineer who lived in Ostend with the Flemish wife and was alcoholic and died earlier, I think. And he remained actually British up until he was fairly much in his 60s, where he then uh, got uh, the possibility by the King Albert I to become a baron. And out of this opportunism, he actually accepted it, and he did a Brexit the other way around. <laughs> so that was, of course, that alone was enough to say yes. Then again... I was very well aware that you also contacted me because I have a long-standing uh, relationship with Manfred Zellig, on which I worked on another China show, which was with traditional art of the southern part Netherlands in collision with old Ch Chinese masters from the 15th to the 20th century. And, of course, the museum in Antwerp is closed till 2019, and we are sitting on the most exquisite works of Enser. I mean, this is the, the stronghold of Enser. And, of course, we have very, very important works from other museums, but the large part comes from the collaboration with this museum. And that, of course... And then I knew I was going to be able, like nothing, to get to all the real pretty important works. Also the fact that there is this very quite bombastic show running about American expressionism underneath... Mm -hmm and we would only have 300 square meters to pump it all in, was great, because this is sort of an operation, a singular operation by one man opposing a sort of cobalt operation of the CIA, <laughs> which was made to make America great, and now we are hearing that America is going to be made great again. <laughs> so in that sense, I thought it was really not only funny, but rather sardonic, and this was what Enzo was also, and very rebellious for that moment, also in his life, had a very political stance to him, and also because there's this cliché about Belgium, it goes, when it goes about Magritte, it goes about, uh, and Enzo, it goes Magritte as the surrealist, which he is not, because he had a fight with, and disembarked himself from the whole surrealism in 1925, <laughs> 
And if you look at his most major work, which is Les Trahisons des Images, or The Treachery of Imagery, which is the real title of the work where you have the pipe, on which there's also a sort of sentence written which says, this is not a pipe. Uh, because, it's, of course, it's not a pipe because it's the image of a pipe. Because, uh, so it's like, this is not my dog. And the, the, the other thing is with Enzo that he's not just grotesque. He is a clear precursor of expressionism and a clear avant-garde artist. And, and a very decisive one, although, of course, he made much of his work before he then was 40 years old and then vegetated at the coast, which must have been quite horrid. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this picture here was actually, or is actually, my preferred picture of Enzo, which I saw as a 16-year-old in the museum in Antwerp. At that point, we still were fortunate enough to still have the entry of Christ in the same museum. They both came from major collectors. I think they actually now, one of them lives in London, actually one of the grandsons lives in London. And those are the people that, when the Belgium state refused to buy the work, actually eventually it ended up in the Geddes Foundation, where it is with, until perpetuity and not to be lent, which is, of course, a shame because it's a major work of art. But this was made one year later and deals with remarkably the same things, which is actually the idea that Enzo, of course, was a bourgeois, died a bourgeois inevitably, but in his day and age, not unlike the turbulence we are living right now, this was the, this was the birth of the Socialist Party, various popular movements, and, of course, the entry of Christ depicts that even more in a larger scale, like nearly a cinemascopic frame that you get. And, but still here, this is also an elongated painting. So. so in that sense, there is this sort of fear of populism that is portrayed, which I like. And of course, this all didn't fall out of thin air. He was only 30 years old when he painted that, and he had knowledge of Jean Chanfleury, which was a Frenchman who created a whole... Uh, encyclopedia about the caricature. And there are clearly definite things you can see, like the Greek mask, you see the popular mask. And the guy with the weird hairdo is apparently based upon a judge, a French judge, who was pretty adamant against freedom of speech. So, but if you would look at this painting and you would go back and try right to this place in the time it was shown, this was, must have been quite shocking. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think one of the things, the challenges we, we, we had and certainly you wanted to move away from was this idea that he's just simply a painter of masks. Yeah, and, and also uh, that's also why I included like, uh, the painting was uh, just, just briefly restored from Antwerp, uh, quite the, I think the largest painting in the show, the, which is called The Expulsion of on the end wall there. Adam and Eve Out of the Paradise. <clears throat> Because that shows you that unlike Enzer would be just sardonic about bloody body fluids and grotesque, and the idea, of course, the skeleton and the element of decay and darkness, it was also the painter of bliss. It was the painter about color, in a sense, also. And uh, I must have had knowledge of Turner and things like that. I don't think he ever didn't travel that much. Uh, but there was this, this definite element of light that played out in his work and eminently was portrayed, and therefore I made a, a very distinct choice of not just emphasizing upon just that, but giving a sort of overall view 
of his work, also the older ones, where you already can see that he was a very fabulous artist. I also made a point of including drawings and etchings because he's a great craftsman. If you see his self-portrait when he was 18, 19 years old, I said, Picasso can go home. And so the, the etchings are also something which is quite interesting. I mean, in this whole practice that he made, this was also, of course, to make money in a sense. Yeah, and you can see some of the etchings on this uh, library case here and drawings uh, on the wall behind. Um, and, I mean, clearly the one thing that's very interesting about Ensor is that he was politically kind of aware. He was uh, he had a great sense of humour, I, I, I think, and also was... You know, he was reading Edgar Allan Poe. He was looking at lots of different artists, although he claimed... That no, he because, especially no... in his beginning years when he was participating with Levin, or the, which was a group of artists sort of based in Brussels. There were shows in which he was in together with Cezanne and with Van Gogh, so it was not that he was completely estranged to the art world. Yeah. But I'm just going to run through a couple of... Uh, you'll see this is the, the, the upstairs, the first gallery of the exhibition... Uh, some of the earlier paintings in this room. There, are, there is this wonderful uh, ostrich feather headdress. Um, and as we run through, you'll see uh, this is another view of the library case and the works on paper. Um, that Luke was very keen to introduce certain um, perhaps unexpected elements, and maybe you would like. Well, to just well there are a couple of them. There is uh, first of all the film by a contemporary uh, artist, a colleague of mine, is a bit older. Guillaume Bayle, who made a fake movie about Enzo. It's actually a guy who has a sort of like antique thrift shop. <laughs> and he, they made the movie like it looked like it was made in 1920, where he does a promenade on the beach with his friends. And most of the people, when this film was shown in Belgium, thought it was real, but of course it isn't. It's been highly criticized by academics that you shouldn't do that. But it's exactly what Enzo also in a certain way did. So it's very Belgian to repeat that in the show. <laughs> The other thing, the ostriches and the masters, or the stages of the mask of the bench, which go back to my own research when I made, and this, the painting is also, and we'll talk about it later in this show, uh, about the bench, was the idea of the question, what would actually happen if you would reactivate the idea of the folkloric? That's an interesting point. Now, this particular carnival is actually being protected by UNESCO as the oldest carnival on the globe. And it's also because it came out of power relationships. I mean, at that point, we were under Spanish rule, and uh, there was a visit of uh, Carlos King Cinco with his son, Philip, uh, to uh, Mar Margarita of Austria. It was then based in the southern part, which is now the French-speaking part, uh, in Bash. And the story goes that, this is all anecdotal, of course, the story goes that the night of the, 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 when they gave like a big buffet and all that, they dressed up as Incas and true oranges and this, themselves because they were actually conquering the new world. This sort of generated itself in a one-day carnival, which is not a very, it's not a very, uh, uh, it's quite a violent carnival in a sense. I mean, there was one woman killed on a balcony because they throw these oranges pretty hard. <laughs> and in a sense, it has this sort of very strange culmination of the exotic, because also this portrayal of the mask with the red hair, the, the, the sort of strange mustache and the green glasses, still inevitably come up or give you some colonial aspect. So in a sense, if this is true or not, the, the real story goes that it's a 19th century secret society who founded this carnival. So, But there are the two, in a sense. And I thought this also 
deals with the same ambiguous element that is played out in the entire oeuvre of yes. Enzo, in a way, and mine too, in a sense. The unexpected and the unknown. In this gallery, you can see intrigue at the end, uh, and on the opposite wall, yeah. there's a, a, a an artist. That I, made, I made a big point to introduce Spilliard, of course, even lesser known than uh, Enzo, who was a compatriot of Enzo and lived in the same city but was younger. He made one mistake. He once had the audacity on the, on the terrace of the casino, who burned down a year later because it was in wood, to say to Enzo that, that Ostend was not the world. And so he ended up in the toilets of Enzo. And, of course, he was wrong because in 1938 even Einstein paid him a visit on his way out of Germany and his escape route over England to the United States. And they did a walk on the beach in which he, of course, explained this whole theory of which Enzo at that point already quite aged understand, understood zilch <laughs> and made a stupid remark and then uh, Einstein asked him adamantly, what did you paint? And he said, nothing. Because, <laughs> no, he painted masks. So in a sense, it's quite an interesting mm. juxtaposition. But this particular figure, unlike Enzo, Enzo was not about psychology. Enzo is also a portrait which we really wanted to have in the show, which, is, which also talks about his positioning and how he sort of validated himself quite young and, and knew very well he was a great artist, is the portrait with the flowery hat, where he makes a sort of clinch to the eye to the Antwerp master, uh, which is actually Rubens. And Rubens is like the first Cecil B. the Mill in painting, because he came in after the Reformation, where everything was broken down. He was, of course, of German descent, and he filled it all back in. And these are the biggest paintings that ever made at that point. I mean, Napoleon Bonaparte didn't schlep them away from the cathedral in Antwerp because they're also on oak, so they weigh tons. And, but, of course, like Enzo, like Enzo and like Rubens, these are the people that don't go into a certain empathy or the psychological. No, they go into the mythologically and the bigger than life, which he then played out far in life, which must have been rather pathetic. Rubens, of course, not because he died in remarried and did several other things. But this is an interesting combination because with Spilliard, which was also much more the, the, the person who had a problem with sleeping, in a sense, and it's much more about the nightscapes, and a completely different, different personality, couldn't paint with oil, only could paint on, uh, on paper, and was an autodidact, unlike the trained Enzo. But the two are quite adamant because they lived at this frontier, which was the sea, in a sense. And, uh, and of course, the one would go much more, spirit would much more go to Hammershoi, which also be rediscovered. And that's been, during his lifetime, of course, mistakenly shown because of the self-portrait next to Munch, which I think is a mistake. Mm. They should have shown him next to the Chirico and other things like that, because not only coming out of symbolism, the impact of the film image is already quite clear, in a work like Vertigo, where you can think about Hitchcock and things like that. But there is a thing in the making that that might travel here one day, and then you can see that too. That was also one of the premises, you know, to do this show, because with the two personalities, I have a specific link. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we have a very specific link here with uh, Luke and James Ensor. This is a painting that uh, Ensor painted of himself when he was 19, and this is a portrait that Luke painted no. of himself when he was 19. Right. 
Uh, so both this... students, <laughs> art students at the time, yeah. uh, and there's a rather beautiful story around this painting. Yeah, this was a funny story, because I actually came back with my interview card uh, from a trip through Hungaria, I think, and closed my eyes and saw this image of myself, which I painted without a mirror in 15 minutes when I got back. But, of course, I couldn't understand that you could make a great painting in 15 minutes, so I fucked it up. And it took me, <laughs> it took me months to get to something close to that initial image. So having thought I'd made something really authentic, I win a prize between all the academies. And with the money prize, I get a book. And the book was of James Simpson. It falls open at this image. Now, unlike, un, of course, there is a formally big difference between but what it beams out was exactly the same. So I was quite depressed because I hadn't made anything <laughs> authentic. And so I was sick for two weeks and came up with an idea which was the authentic forgery. And, and that was actually probably more true to the matter because nothing falls out of thin air. But it was a, quite an interesting, mm. shocking moment to sort of have to adhere to that. And you didn't know that painting beforehand? No. No. And what I find very interesting is uh, that not soon after this point, you abandoned painting, is that right? And you start moving into film and uh, still It was image. a couple of years later, yeah, but that was another reason. That was because uh, I was a very gestural painter, much more colourful, very colourful in a sense. And, uh, and it became too, uh, how do you call it, too existential, too tormented, and all the, I mean, all the things I hate. And so then, by accident, a friend of mine shoved me a Super 8 camera in my hands, and I started a film from there to, to, to Super 16 because they took the, the, the one footage that only was for use for scientific purposes because it was great. It was 400 hours, and you could paint, you could actually film with, a, with, a, with an office lamp. Mm. But they took it out of the market. So I went to 16 uh, millimeter, and then in the end, I went to 35 millimeter, even with a crew. Uh, of which I still have uh, 25 minutes or something like that. But I stopped that because it looked a bit too much like uh, Jim Jarmus, Stranger Than Paradise. <laughs> so, and of course it was also a financial problem. But, and that, but the one big thing that that did is that it gave me distance. Mm -hmm. This is probably also a little bit of difference in why Enzo, and seeing the times he lived in, sort of at the end, sort of like, not completely repeated him because, because there's a very beautiful work of, from the 40s that is actually quite close if you would compare it with somebody like Roland de Kaiser, who mm -hmm. also unfortunately died, and I know it was about the wind mm -hmm. blowing, uh, which is a very playful situation. But moreover, of course, he was recapitulating <coughs> the oeuvre that he had already made, in a sense, and there's also a great deal of fake answers that are around, basically, because of that. So, but I think the reason that is is because there was not enough distance at a certain point. And also, it was a different time. And the, what the film did to me, or the moving image, much more than the photographical image, because, I mean, uh, I'm born out of a television generation, which means that you have an enormous manco of experience and an overload or overkill of imagery, which is even bigger now in terms of the digitalized or the internet, or whatever world you can think of. And at the same time, it becomes very small because you can also figure out the people you like in Facebook and the ones you don't. <laughs> this is actually why we had the American elections. So, in this sense, in this sense, that's, but that means that the moving imagery, for me, is interesting because it's the one you pause. Mm. 
and uh, and through the lens I got the distance that you need. Because of course I wanted to paint something like the diagnostical view in 1978, but just couldn't, because I was too close up to the subject in a sense. And in order to do that, and this is I think where Enzo sort of faded, because there was no distance. And it's interesting to look, because that's one of the reasons, one of the critiques I got when I did the show by a very interesting art critic of which I forgot the name was Russian, said that in my work it was important for the spectator to measure the distance between the image and themselves. It's an interesting point. Also the fact that most painters use a mirror in the backdrop or a hand mirror to turn it around, which is, doubles the distance in the situation. Of course, as I say, we live in a different age as Anser lived, and this is also where Spilliard was a bit different already in a sense because it was also a younger generation. But you, you now paint uh, um, with a great intensity, don't you? When you paint, you create um, work you're painting through one day, is that right? So you focus your energies on, on starting and finishing that work. Did you learn a valuable lesson through that portrait? Going, <laughs> going back and... Yeah, well, yeah, probably. I don't know. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, no, it just grew organically. It's, just, it's not something that was like, sort of taught out in a sense. It, is, it also has to do with my own attention span, probably, and getting bored easily. And, but it also has to do with the idea that uh, it, painting for me has everything to do with timing and precision. It's a very particular, peculiar medium. It's, of course, very physical in a sense, but that doesn't mean that I and my paintings and my, that my paintings are me. That's a different point. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of preparation that goes and in this sort of uh, very difficult period now to figure out what I'm going to paint, which is the most uh, the most difficult period because it's it's the most haunted one. Where you have, since I work with already paintings that are either existing or imagery that is either existing that I so rework or reinterpret, uh, or even not, but I mean there is this, this thing that I work with figuration in a sense. I also have to know what it means. So that doesn't mean I can paint anything, I mean, so, or everything. So that doesn't mean that everybody has to see the same things in it that I see, but in order to be instigated to do it, it has to make sense in a way. It has to have a relevance also. And that's always a search. But once this search is over and all the material is sort of like analyzed to death, then it will be sort of like revived by this one day to which I prepare. It's not every day. It's mostly a Thursday to which I really prepare myself, don't drink the night before and things like that. I'm quickly sober and very tense as somebody who has stage fright and the very three hours, first hours still, although I'm doing this for more than 35 years and know all the tricks, are still hell. It's when the thing falls together that eventually the pleasure starts. But it's, I'm still completely astonished when it works. I mean, the, this astonishment, I, I hope it will stay because it's really important to not keep this innocence because you lose your innocence the minute you do your first show. But I mean the, the, that you have this sort of tension. Uh, once you lose this tension and you just go to a job, or uh, and that's also why I can't work on, 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 on several paintings at a time, like, for example, Richter does, where he has like a small space. For the, he's also, of course, hard-working DDR. Small space uh, for the smaller paintings, the middle one for the somewhat bigger, and the big one for the biggest one. But then, okay, there is this. This is a. This is also the difference because I think Richter, great artist and all, is a process artist and less a painter. This is a sort of. 
thing I sort of perceive. And all painters that I like are also painters that have clearly positioned themselves. And that can go from Velasquez, who positions himself from up down. You're just shit. And, and he actually also wants to become the ability which he became. And then you have Goya, who is like uh, incoherent. I mean, like the, one of the shows I saw here in the National Gallery, there were very bad portraits hanging next to great portraits, which is quite interesting. But he is still far more annoying than Velasquez. So that is what actually tantalizes me. And of course, he was one of the very, he made the, I think in painting, it's the painter that made the very first political <coughs> image to save his ass which was, of course, he had a relationship with the officers from the Enlightenment, but he was still working for the king, and that's exactly why he painted, when the king was reinstalled, he painted the two, uh, the two paintings, among which, of course, Las Tres de Mayo, which is the most, mm. in, I mean, important painting, I think. Yeah, well worth it. If you're in, 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 in <coughs> Madrid to go into the Prado and see those, those paintings... Uh, I put this slide in because uh, I wanted to make a connection with uh, Ensor and photography. I think you can probably see quite clearly the top image is almost a direct copy yeah. of. And the, the bottom image is a slightly more reworked. He's re remodeled and repositioned the, 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 actually his friends uh, and relatives uh, in this scene here. Um, so I, I was struck by the fact that Ensor used photography and worked with photography and worked from photography and very much something that you do um, but in, 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 a, in, a, in a very different way. I think these were both Polaroids, is that right, that you worked yeah, these from? Yeah, and actually the first idea was to, we, 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 I wanted to have this painting in the show, but that is owned by a Spanish collector and at, that, at the point that we have this show now, she is doing a tour of her collection through uh, Latin America, South America, Brazil, and so on. So we couldn't get that. That's why I also insist on having the real mask here, mm -hmm. of which this is then derived. And that's the painting of the Gilles de Bange. Uh, I mean, yeah, and so using photography, it's not really an oddity. I mean, Manet also was using photography uh, in order also to make his painting of the execution of Maximilian to order to assemble the information about the uniforms and mm -hmm. things like that. So there is a long-standing tradition. Oh, yeah. Sickert also, so in a sense, there is a, a, a tradition in that. Oh yes, I, I, I mean I think there's. The, I, I'm trying to make the connection between how he worked using the technology of the day, how you work now using mm -hmm. technology. You, you, you've used film stills, you've used uh, Polaroids. You're yep, using yep. digital images you take on your iPhone. Yep, because I think it's, it's, it's stupidity to want to fight new media because it's a fight you're never going to win. So it's better to incorporate it into your toolbox and to use it, in a sense. I think mm. it's more interesting. Since the medium is specific, and when the medium is sort of handled in a way that it's relevant, as I said before, it's one of the other mediums. I mean, that you can actually be very painterly in photography and in film, too. I mean, so the, 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 the painterly aspect is not just sort of consolidated themselves like in a very sort of conservative way to just painting. That would be an open simplification. Uh, but the way you use your medium is, of course, uh, you have to deal with a certain accuracy, and also you have to like to do it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, is, it is a part of that also the joy of doing it. And when it's no longer it creates this tension and this sort of, like, intensity, then you sort of lost it. But uh, I think that is a very particular uh, unexchangeable point, as 
all mediums have an unexchangeable point. But they live of each other. I mean, so they inform each other, and, and that's unavoidable. I mean, I can imagine that there was this slight fight still up until the 60s with P.S. Selman and actually also Richter. But with Richter, it's quite strange because by the fact that Richter took that on, he created a whole generation of new German photographers, Thomas Ruf, Thomas Struth, which are completely informed by his paintings in a way. So it's, it also goes the other way around. So I'm just going to finish, uh, I think, with... Uh, I mean, intriguing is a good word. It's the name of the exhibition... Uh, it's the name of Ensor's great painting, uh, and there is obviously, you know, the, there is that sense of what is it you're looking at and the activities that are taking place in some mm-hmm. of his paintings. But I also think that a lot of your work is incredibly intriguing because to the untrained person, it's not evident what this ghostly, sort of slightly uh, haunted figure is. Uh, once you understand mm. the context, once you see the feather headdress and you understand that there's a, you 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 see more of, uh, get more understanding. And this is something that it, it comes in, in your work. Do you, do you deliberately choose images that provoke that kind of sense of intrigue, or is this something that just appeals to you? Wanting well, to I'll, I'll answer with an anecdote, and then we can kill it. So there was this sort of like, uh, it was a British guy who has, uh, was the chief director of a museum in Honolulu, who completely hated my work. <laughs> And in 2004, went to see my survey in the Tate Modern, even hated it more, but then started to dream of it and became one of my biggest fans. So that's how it functions. You entirely work upon the memory. Painting is a medium that works with time, two time, over time. It's a slow medium, which impacts in a different and a sort of more catastrophic way, in terms because it deals which is what is embedded in our culture, which is Western image building, anyhow. And this Western image building, and this is what I also say, whenever asked, why do you still paint, the, the, the key answer is, because I'm not, I'm not naive. Because painting was never and was always about art, not life itself. Even the cave paintings were not just to direct the people to, 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 to some of the people to to show them how you would hunt. No, it, it has a symbolic value that supersedes that. So, in that sense, it's the first conceptual image ever, and in that sense, it also functions. So, and so also does function my work, and I think that is a very very particular situation. The other thing is that I also think that art should be clearly ambiguous, and never one-on-one. It should have a layerment of signifiers, because otherwise we are just making propaganda. And so in that sense, it is really important that you make this specific impact. And it's quite difficult to find the type of imagery that goes borderline, in a sense. And it is also an element of trying to be evasive in a very particular way. Well, I think uh, we've had some fascinating insights into Luke's work as an artist and as a curator, and I would like to take this opportunity to thank him very much for talking thank to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.